0: Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.
1: All right, everyone, we're on to our next segment. And Venk, have I got a challenge for you? Okay. You know that I, uh, you know, I spend part of my time in the community. And so we're going to transport here to a small community emergency department. You're working a Friday night shift. Uh, it's a full moon, obviously, <laughs> obviously Friday the 13th. Okay. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's midnight. You have several sick patients and you have one patient who is less sick, but you're getting a lot of call lights and you get called back to the room. The patient is there for intoxication and now wants to leave. What are we going to do here?
0: Absolutely. I want to tell you, I'm feeling really good about this because Friday the 13th is my favorite day. I was born on Friday the 13th and my youngest son was born on Friday the 13th. That is wonderful. No less. Both of us. That is wonderful. um, So this is making me feel really good. These are my favorite shifts.
1: So these are the ones that make me sweat. you, You know, you can give me a STEMI, you give me a stroke. To me, it's cut and dry. And these are the ones that I lose sleep over
0: absolutely after the
1: shift, because I never know, am I doing the right thing? I want to serve the patient, yeah. but I constantly am questioning my judgment because I, I, I feel like I see this done so many ways, absolutely. you know, am I walking in? Am I saying the patient's awake, alert, and oriented? Are they walking? You know, what have I got to do to make this safe for the patient and for me?
0: Right, right, right. Um, and other background piece that's relevant as to why I'm passionate about this space, um, as we've talked about before, I started a residency in psychiatry and had to do a lot of capacity assessments um, as part of that, and then redid my training in emergency medicine and had to do a lot there too. And So this space where we're talking about cognition, mental health, intoxicants, I I tend to see it from multiple angles that others may not have seen or had that life experience. And so it's an area of personal passion for me. And I would say, first, we should all take a deep breath. We are exceptional at this. We don't necessarily think that we're doing it, but every time we give a recommendation, ma'am, I'm worried that you have appendicitis and I want to get a CT of your belly, but there's some risk to that. That conversation happens after you've already had a conversation and you have a a gestalt that they have capacity to make this decision with you. And I think we are probably using a lot of the important factors in that gestalt, but having a structured way of approaching a capacity assessment is much better than gestalt. So what do I do? Well, it begins before I even walk in the room. I'm trying to assess how high risk this decision is. If the decision is I want them to have milk and a meat sandwich because they're hypoglycemic and they would rather have a vegetarian sandwich and milk. Well, that risk is not quite as high as I think that they need to stay because I'm worried they hit their head and might have a head bleed and they want to leave without any neuroimaging um, because they want to get back to the party or whatever. That decision is much more high risk. And so once I know that walking in, the amount of evidence I need to feel comfortable that this person in front of me probably has capacity to make the decision will be affected by that risk. High risk decisions, more evidence, low risk decision, less evidence. Um, And the reason I say that is because we'll never know for sure whether or not they have capacity. We're trying to play the odds game. How likely is it that they have capacity to make this particular decision? Okay. So that's the theory before I go in, what, how high risk is the situation? The next thing I do is I engage the patient, make sure that we are, that they're aware. I want to partner with them for their best interest. I'm an advocate for them. And I need to make sure that we have all the same information and that we can process it um, in their interest. Okay. Then I tell them, here's all the relevant information for for a decision And then I talk to them about the decision I need them to make. What are the options that we should consider? What are the risks and benefits of each of those options? And I have them give me all that information back in their own words. I especially don't want them to just parrot back what I say. I want them to think about it, process it, and give it to me in a digested form that really represents their words. That really conveys that they understood what I wanted them to get. And don't get me wrong, when they have alcohol or coke or meth on board or something, or they're angry, this is very hard and it takes patience and you got to sit there and just meet them where they are and try to remind them the purpose of why we're having this conversation. Once they have all that information, then I ask them to tell me, knowing all that, what are the factors they're weighing to make their decision? And then what is their ultimate decision? Once I go through that, I feel really confident that I can let them go if that's what they want or really allow them to make that decision, even if it's not in line with what I think is best.
1: All right. Can I give those back to you rapid fire? Absolutely. All right. Assess the risk. How high stakes is is this decision? Does the patient have a bleed and they want to go out or do they want a ham sandwich? Number two, convey the relevant information. Number three, they repeat it back. It doesn't have to be word for word but they have to convey that they understood what you said. Basically, you're having an AMA discussion with the patient. Mm-hmm. Next, you have to understand their rationale. It doesn't have to be something you agree with, but they have to give you a logical and clear explanation for why they're, they're making a choice. And then they make the choice. Is that right?
0: In there, I would also tell them the question that, we're, that them and I are partnering to answer. And what are the options they should consider before they give you their reasoning?
1: Okay. I have some specific questions because I've seen this done a lot of ways, and I feel like you might have left something out. Okay. Number one, are they alert and oriented? I I feel like a lot of charts (laughs) that I look at start with this aspect. Did you forget that?
0: I didn't. I didn't. That's a great question. I think a lot of people think orientation equals capacity. And that's not the case. Somebody can be fully oriented and also not have capacity to make the specific decision in front of them. And somebody may not be fully oriented, but have capacity to make the decision. And the best examples I would give imagine a parent who is in total shock of the trauma that their child has had. They're fully oriented, but they may not be able to go through a capacity assessment because they're just not able to. Process what you're telling them flip side, imagine the schizophrenic patient who is chronically disoriented but yet has a logic and reasoning that they can process the information you're giving to them, understand it, digest it, and make an uh, make a decision that's in line with their personal values.
1: okay, I definitely understand one of those. I don't think I'd considered the schizophrenic one before because I think i would I get really focused on figuring out if they're a hundred percent oriented. So that's, that's definitely a change for me. A couple other ones. I think you might've missed. Are they walking across the emergency department and are they stumbling and is there sober ride here to get them?
0: Yeah. We hear this all the time. Don't we? Uh, Some variations, the sober ride has to come in and shake your hand and Do all kinds of other things. And then I do
1: my structured capacity assessment on that person. On that
0: person. Exactly. There's all variations, right? Well, here's the thing those are not necessarily part of a capacity assessment. But if you think that they're stumbling is a relevant context piece, you might give that to them. Sir, I am worried you are unsteady on your feet. And I'm worried if you're not here that you could fall and be hurt somewhere without any support. Certainly, you could fall here too, but at least we'd be here to support you if that happens. That is where that fits. It's not that because they're stumbling, they suddenly do not have the ability to cognitively make a decision. Their motor issues are related to their motor abilities, and their cognitive issues are going to be what determines their ability to make this cognitive decision.
1: Okay. The last aspect of this that I've struggled with is... We've been talking about alcohol. What if it's something like heroin and it's suddenly reversed? Absolutely. I probably signed out to you last night. I gave this patient Narcan. They didn't have capacity when I saw them just prior to the Narcan. And at the moment of handoff it's like hot potato. I hand you uh, <laughs> an angry patient who's demanding to leave and and I'm waving at you as I walk out the door of my shift.
0: That never happens. <laughs> Alex is always waving at me as he walks out the door, giving me these kind of patients. I'm just kidding. He stays after his shift all the time. I wish you all could have partners like Alex. Uh, we would never do this, but um, it happens, right? Narcan and opioids changes the cognitive ability of the patient dramatically, right? And so early in my career, I was staffing an overnight shift in a county hospital and I had a patient who was brought in with an opioid or heroin overdose, and we gave them Narcan because it was that or intubate them. And I gave a big dose. I was young and I was really afraid. They woke up completely. They were angry. That never happens. I know none of our (laughs) listeners have ever had this happen. Angry, yelling, they want to leave. In front of the entire resuscitation team, I did a capacity assessment and they met everything. Now, don't get me wrong. They also had alcohol, at least I think based on their, the smell of their breath and, and some of their coordination issues. Um, and they were stumbling, et cetera, but they were very articulate that they wanted to leave. They didn't want the bill. They've done this before. They know that they could get into harm's way, but they're leaving now and I had to let them go. Unfortunately, when they left, they did get hit by an ambulance nearby in the hospital and oh, were brought wow. back. And, I felt really terrible. And obviously the hospital was looking at me very closely in my care. And I started to question myself. I think everyone would, right? I'm glad to say that in the end, everybody agreed that I, we had done the right thing as a team to let him go and that I had handled that appropriately. There was some question whether I should have given him such a big dose of Narcan. I think that was, that was the um, opportunity for me to do things differently. But once they, the person demonstrates the cognitive ability, the capacity to make that decision, and they're not suicidal or homicidal, I have to let them go. I, that, that's the right thing to do, even if it's not what I would do. And how do I reconcile that now? And in the moment, I felt really bad. But I think what, it, what I've come to realize is that my goal is not to impose my values upon this patient but rather to try and help achieve the patient's own values. We do this really well at end of life, but people deserve that autonomy even earlier than that. They deserve the autonomy to make choices that I might think are bad choices.
1: I think I'm understanding, in some ways, Narcan is almost a microcosm for this question, though, of does capacity change? You know, another another common sign-out scenario is this patient is super drunk, you know, waiting for disposition, can't go, right? I mean, that's basically the information you want in sign out. Can they go? Can they not go? And you're told they can't go. Uh, nurse comes up and says, patient's demanding to leave. What do, you, what do you have to do in that situation?
0: Absolutely. You're right. Narcan is just a very rapid sequence change, but that same change happens as people sober um, or you know, whatever their head injury starts to resolve. And so you have to reassess when there's reasonable belief that the situation has changed, just go and do the capacity assessment again.
1: Okay. In some ways, the, the structured capacity assessment is giving me a tool to reassess, but it's, it's not static. It's dynamic. I'm going to have to apply it a couple times potentially.
0: Potentially. Yeah. Okay. And that's how it differs really from competence. So competence is a global assessment issued by a court, not by a doctor, that applies to the patient's ability to make all decisions and is a fixed thing until the court decides otherwise. We are not assessing competence. We are assessing capacity. And capacity is limited to the specific decision that we're talking about and at the specific time that we talk about it.
1: I think of you know the field sobriety test. A lot of times when I'm doing my neuro exam, a patient will, will joke, Uh, You know, are you trying to figure out if I'm drunk when I'm doing my finger to nose testing? Mm -hmm. And in the case of the intoxicated patient, is that what I'm getting at? So I have them walk across the emergency department and they start to stumble. Does that mean they're not going home? I know it makes me a lot more uncomfortable. For me, a clean discharge is the patient is speaking to me without slurring. They have done a jig across the emergency (laughs) department and and they've high-fived their sober ride who I've talked to and is a caring spouse who is going to drive them home. That, that's a good situation, oh, but yeah. I'm never in that situation.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's rare, isn't it?
1: So what happens if the patient goes to stand up and seems like they're going to stumble?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Well, what do I do?
0: Yeah, it's tough and it is uncomfortable. Absolutely. And you're right. The gold standard is like you said, I would love that. I- don't remember the last time that happened. <laughs> um, but you know, we're talking about a cognitive thing. Do they have the ability to understand the question, all the relevant pieces to that question, the risks and the benefits, and can they articulate a decision that really is one that is their own with their own reasoning, and that really doesn't involve I mean it's not invalidated because they are have poor coordination and so motor issues they don't invalidate capacity to make decisions you might give them to the patient in their context like telling them i'm worried you might fall at home and there's no one there to take care of you if you if you do that and so i'd rather you do that here or at least be unsteady here and go home later when you are more steady how how do you feel about that and they can articulate it and maybe they say listen every friday i'm this this unsteady and yes i do fall sometimes but i'd rather take that risk so i can be there for my child in the morning or i have a job or my cat needs me you know and it's not up to me to judge their reasoning other than is it logical even if that logic isn't the way i would go through it if they can do it then I have to support them in that decision.
1: I think you might've missed something else in your structured capacity assessment, if I may be so bold. Bring it. (laughs) On the way to the room, am I getting a breath alcohol test? Uh, Uh, Is that, because for me to discharge the patient safely, I want it to be zero the legal limit. Mm -hmm. Is that right?
0: What an excellent question. And it's one that everyone around us is asking. Our nurses want to know, our trainees want to know, our colleagues want to know. And as a specialty, I think we give such varying answers that it leaves growing confusion in in our wake. So let's take the question of whether or not you need a serum or breath alcohol level or a urine drug screen or the equivalent testing before they go home. Um, That is not a requirement for assessing capacity. And There can be any alcohol level imaginable, and the patient may still demonstrate capacity to make the decision to go home, and we should honor it. If they go through those questions appropriately and their serum um, alcohol level is 450, well, we should let them go. Um, It's uncomfortable for sure. And you should say it in the context that Sir or ma'am, your alcohol level is so high, and yet you are awake and breathing and talking to me. That makes me very worried that you're at high risk for withdrawal complications if you stop drinking, um, and that if you drink any more, uh, that you, you might get into trouble where you stop breathing and things like that. And I'd rather you have that happen here in the hospital. So I would give that in the context. But if they're awake and able to go through the, con- the structured capacity assessment with you, you have to let them go. I think it's, it's certainly important to remember that dementia, intoxication, ambulation, none of these factor into whether or not the person has capacity to make a decision.
1: We've had a chance to talk a lot about alcohol use because again, uh, in our imaginary emergency department, it's <laughs> Friday the 13th, full moon. Best day of the year. Best day of the year. but. Let's approach an even more nuanced question: mental illness. So, something like schizophrenia. I think that I am frequently presented with a patient uh, with a question of something like a wellness check. I feel that it's it's our great honor in emergency medicine to be able to, in in some ways, provide longitudinal, high quality care to our patients struggling with uh, mental illness, and I might know the patient better than anyone else, uh, maybe even in some cases, there's family. And so I'll recognize the patient, but they're brought in for a wellness check. Somebody thought maybe they're responding to internal stimuli, maybe walking down the street, somebody misinterpreted something they did and said, this person looks quote unquote crazy. But on my assessment, other than the voices that they might hear at baseline, there's nothing else different from usual. Does this patient get put on a hold?
0: So the interface with mental illness is an important one, and it can be very complicated. I begin with, is the patient suicidal or homicidal? If those are the case, it doesn't matter if they have capacity to make the decision. They get placed on a mental health hold. Uh, The next piece is, do they have capacity to make the decision? It's specific to whatever decision you want them to make in the case of going home or um, taking a medication for their psychosis or whatnot. You would go through what is the context, uh, the relevant contextual information? What is the question on the table? What are the options to that question? What are the risks and benefits? Have them repeat it all back to you, share their reasoning, and then make, have them share their decision. And assuming their reasoning is logical, which many people with schizophrenia can still do, even though they might have auditory hallucinations, their logic is intact Then you honor it. You honor it.
1: So it's really in this case more about a question of the logic of the decision and their safety, rather, uh, kind of a global assessment of their safety rather than just the voices being present.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Plenty of people with schizophrenia and delusions and psychoses function at very high levels in the community or even are not functioning really well, but they retain the autonomy to make their decisions.
1: I want to talk about consequences because I think for me it's the consequences in some ways are weighing heavily on me. Absolutely. And when I'm faced with this decision sometimes it feels like I'm making a decision of if I let the patient go they get hit by a car I'm on the hook for, you know, a huge malpractice claim and if I keep the patient here and I wasn't supposed to I'm also, this is, I'm committing malpractice. How do you approach that question?
0: It is scary. you know, And not unlike every, a lot of other things in our specialty, right? We are caught in a quagmire, do or do not give lytics for the coding patient, right? And um, on one hand, we could make the whole situation a lot worse. And then this is no different. Um, in this one, if you let them go and they get hurt or they don't get hurt, there's always the the potential that somebody else disagrees with your capacity assessment. I stand firm, at least if I'm being very careful and going through my structured capacity assessment, and I'm documenting that I went through that with them. And if possible, if I know that it's a very high stakes conversation, I'll probably try and get somebody else to be in the room. Um, A witness from the healthcare team, and then ideally also somebody to support the patient in the decision making, like one of their family members, et cetera, would be great. But those are not requirements, don't get me wrong, to be present, and I'll document all that. But things can go wrong either way, like you said. And I go, I rest on the fact that I'm trying to help the patients achieve their best outcomes as they see it and their best decisions, even though there's risk everywhere. Now, whether, it's all, um, whether it is always malpractice or not is a separate, que- a separate point. And I think it's important for us to be aware, but not scared of this, but aware that if you restrain somebody against their will, and it is felt that you shouldn't have done that this is not necessarily an issue of malpractice and it's more of assault. If you're like holding them and giving them medications uh, or kidnapping, and these are like, these are criminal charges. Um, And that's very different than if you let them go and they get hurt and it is felt that you should have restrained them. That is a malpractice issue. And so you have much more malpractice supports. And certainly I don't want people to be afraid to do what they think is right. Um, I think as long as we're acting in good faith, you're not, you know, trying to put a restraint on your neighbor because their fence encroached onto your yard or something. You know, I think <laughs> it's very unlikely any court or judge is going to penalize you for restraining somebody and put you in jail for kidnapping. You know, I um, as long as you're acting in in a very reasonable best interest of the patient. With that said, there have been some pretty high profile media situations where. Healthcare, situ- healthcare institutions have um, been accused by patients, family, or media of restraining people inappropriately. And um, I think more, more importantly, we, wanna, we all want to do what is right for the patients and help them achieve their best outcomes. I mean, think about what we do. We go above and beyond at the end of life, right, to try and help people achieve their own autonomy in their death we want to honor their autonomy in their life as well, even if it's not the way we want to to, to go.
1: I did find I was doing a, a quick review of the literature before we got started because we're coming at this from such different levels of knowledge. Mine is so much lower. And I read a little bit about this model, the curves model. Is that something you endorse? It seems a little bit different than what, what you told me about.
0: What a great question. Curves, it shows up throughout the medical literature in different areas. And I think it's certainly a step up from using gestalt to assess capacity. But there's some pitfalls. So first, curve stands for C is choose or communicate. U, the patient has to express understanding of what you're sharing. R, for reason that the patient can articulate their reasoning for their decision. V, how does their decision fit with their own intrinsic values? E, emergency, is there a serious and imminent risk to the patient's health and well-being that needs to to supersede their decision-making? And S, for surrogate, is there a surrogate decision-maker available? And, And so again, this is better than gestalt, but I would hate for anyone to think that a patient does not have the ability to make decisions in high stakes emergency situations they continue to retain their ability to make those decisions if they can go through the structured capacity assessment i presented earlier and the curves mnemonic kind of implies that maybe they don't and that we should force our emergency care upon them but even if they have a ruptured aorta and they don't want care we should honor that if they have capacity to make that decision and the same with the surrogate piece there can be a next of kin or surrogate decision maker, but if the patient themselves has capacity to make the decision as demonstrated by the structured capacity assessment that I laid out before, we have to honor that even if it's not what the surrogate wants or what we want and so I think the curves has some uh, leaves some opportunity for us to be even better because of those two the emergency and the surrogate and they uh, I would also mention assessing whether their decision fits with their values is really hard for us. I think we have to allow for the fact that the patient may not have a very well codified set of values, but if they can give a reasoning to make a decision, we should honor that.
1: That's incredibly helpful. Do you have any other pearls for us?
0: You know, I think the take-home, remember, we do this every day, all day as a specialty. We are so good at this. Don't get panicked in these situations where the patient has an intoxicant or they're angry or there seems to be some uh, some other factor that makes you uncomfortable. Practice having this structured capacity assessment and you can lean on it when the pressure is high and it'll help you feel more confident. And remember, it's not about trying to achieve what we think the best healthcare outcome is. It's about trying to give the patient the autonomy to make a decision. I, I think it's important to remember that this is not shared decision making, because shared decision making is where two options seem equal to us, but rather this is more about choosing something other than our medical advice. And does the patient have the capacity to make that decision? Remember that capacity is not fixed in time. It's not global. It applies to whatever whatever the specific question that you're giving them information about. And you'll never know for sure. So you're just trying to. Get, be your best. Give your best guess about whether or not they have capacity. To review the, the structured capacity assessment, if you take away only one thing, it's this. Before you get into it, how risky is this question? Based on that, set your threshold for what is acceptable amount of evidence um, based accordingly. Give the patient all the relevant contextual information. You think they're stumbling. They don't have supports. This makes it more dangerous. Whatever worries you, put it there, but also give them the benefits too. whatever the good things. Hey, you know, you, you have a home. That's great. You have a job. That's wonderful. Things like that. Lay out the question very specifically. The question on the table, sir, is can you go home? And then what are the two options you want them to consider? I want you to consider staying in the hospital, but I understand that you would probably want to go home. And so weigh those two options. Here are the risks and benefits of each of those options, and then have them tell you all that stuff back in their own words. Afterwards, ask them to to walk you through how they're making the decision and make sure that there is logic and reasoning there, even if it's not the logic and reasoning that you would use. As long as it's logical, accept it. And then finally, have them indicate what their decision is and honor it and feel really good about being an advocate for that patient's autonomy.
1: I noticed you keep coming back to the question of autonomy. And I I think it's helpful to frame this discussion in that context, because a lot of what I'm trying to do is think about this in terms of what is in the best interest of the patient. And and that isn't always necessarily what I want to do. Autonomy plays a big role in the question of what is in their interest. They can make that decision if they have capacity. And that's what I'm there to assess. Amen. Well, thank you so much for for this thing. I know I'm going to sleep more soundly after my next shift. And I think also this model, an added benefit is in those moments where you're overwhelmed, you can frequently run into these complex patient encounters, and you need to be focused for your next one. And I think that if you use this model, these encounters are not going to bleed over and haunt you into your next encounter, and you can approach your next patient, sure that you did the right thing.
0: Absolutely. And I find when I see people over and over in the emergency department over time, usually they, they are relieved to see me enter the room when there's a, a debate whether they can go home or not, because they know I'm going to hear them and, and try and honor their wishes as much as I can. And so um, I think it's a really nice way to build allegiance and instead of building fear of the healthcare environment. Thanks so much for talking through this. I, I love this topic.
1: Fantastic. All right, everyone, just a, a little bit of uh, structure for your next Friday the 13th shift. And uh, and when you get a chance, wish Venk a happy Friday the 13th next time you uh, you get a chance.
0: Absolutely. I welcome it. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.